Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. We ask that your spirit will uh, join us, enlighten our minds, draw us into the unity that's in our faith inherent in Christ. And may we uh, be uh, more effective witnesses for you. And may we learn of you as we study. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson two in the quarterly, The Crucible with Christ, and the title is The Crucibles That Come. And the memory text is 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, which reads, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you're, you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Why do painful trials come? To strengthen our faith. To strengthen our faith. Because we're at war. To make us study and pray more. To make us study and pray more. See, I, I, I've, this is kind of a similar question. As why, do, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do difficulties and trials come? Uh, and I think the landscape is we're in, a, we're in a war zone. We live in a world that's at war. In a world at war, people get hurt and injured. So landscape number one is we're not in God's perfect, sinless universe. We're in a world in which there's a war ongoing. But with that in mind, there are evil people who intentionally do evil in this world, are there not? And so people get harmed and go through difficulties because evil people do evil and innocent people suffer. But we live in a world in which all nature is infected with the law of sin and death. The Bible talks about God's life-giving glory no longer bathes this planet like it did in Eden. Uh, Earth is sustaining all kinds, including us, our bodies, uh, all kinds of genetic, physiological, and random events that injure and harm. And we are all physically slowly decaying, it's called aging, toward the first death. That's part of what's happening on this planet right now, isn't it? And they bring difficulties and trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have trials because of the consequences of our own choices, either sinful or not sinful choices. Those cho- those non-sinful choices can bring trials. For instance, uh, you are out skiing and you tried to you decide to take a run, a ski run down the slope beyond your current skill level, and you get in an accident and fracture your leg or break your leg. You're, you have a trial now. And, and your leg fractures because we have frail bodies that don't have the best eye-hand coordination. Bones can break. We don't have the strength that Adam had. Uh, it, lots of reasons why. But that choice that, that brings a trial was well, not a sinful choice. It was a misjudging of one's abilities or the dangers involved in the particular slope. Uh, there's no evil, but that brings a trial. We also have trials as a witness. Think of the situation in Job's case and the trials he went through, and it wasn't for strengthening of his personal faith, but it was a demonstration. Stephen being stoned and so forth. Daniel and the three worthies. But regardless of the reason for the trial, regardless of the reason, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Not all things are good, but God works for the good in all things. Meaning that in, for whatever the reason, you're being persecuted by an evil person. You've made a poor decision and brought some trial upon yourself. Uh, we're just suffering with the weight of degradation that's happening to our bodies as we age. Regardless of the reason for the trial, for those who trust God, God works for the good including strengthening their faith and trust in him. Yes or no? We must not fall into the trap when we talk about trials of relegating all of life's trials into one or two categories. All life's trials are you've got sin and you don't have enough faith. Do you see that could cause damage? That could hurt somebody's mind. I, have you seen people hurt because some tragedy or trial came in their life and some well-meaning church person relegated the experience from their perspective. They put it out there. Well, that's you must have some sin in your life you haven't confessed. You've never seen that? It may not be that at all. 
But they were the three friends of Job. That was exactly their argument. You, we know that bad things don't happen to the righteous, so you must have some sin. And they were completely wrong. So with all these things in mind, why should we rejoice, as Peter said in our memory text, to participate in the sufferings of Christ? Why should we rejoice? Because then we know that we are going to share in glory. Because we're going to share in his glory. Well, how is the suffering of Christ related to sharing in the glory? And how does our participating in the sufferings of Christ related to sharing in the glory? What's the connection? What's the link? Well, you have, you, you've, you've done sin, and sin requires some form of punishment. You've got to pay the price somewhere. You know, Christ took the legal part of it, but you have to suffer a little bit too to make sure that you've paid your, your price up. Is that it? It doesn't sound right. No, something about that doesn't ring true. <laughs> Good for you. Yes, Russell? Well, the sufferings of Christ was primarily... It, it wasn't in, in and of a choice that he made. It, it was external to himself. It was because he, he presented the truth about who he was, about who God was, and the, the church leadership hated him, wanted to murder him. So... Suffering of, of dealing with, of struggling with the, the internal temptation that he was dealt with uh, from his mother's genetics. So, what type of suffering did Jesus have? Mental and physical. And mental and physical. He got hungry. He got tired. Uh, he certainly felt pain when they put the thorns in his flesh and, and crucified him. Uh, mental and physical. Okay, but but the the cause. Let's put it this way. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2, because we're reading in Peter for our memory text, and, and we want to, you know, we rejoice in the sufferings and sharing in the sufferings of Christ. There's a linkage somehow with, with glory. Here's what he says 10 verses earlier to our memory text. This is what Peter says. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same attitude or mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And he no longer should live, that he should no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. If you suffer in the flesh, you've ceased from sin. Now, if you put that together with the linkage, we rejoice in our sufferings because we will join him in, his, in the glory. There's a link here now, isn't there? There's a type of suffering that results in being linked with Christ in glory. And it's the suffering that has to do with the cessation of sin. Not the type of suffering that Job went through. Job's suffering was not the type of suffering that was necessary for Job to to cease from sin. He was already perfect and righteous in all his ways. There's no one on the earth like him, God said. He'd already achieved the, whatever that is. We talked about this in our lesson last week, the valley of the shadow of death. There's a suffering, a certain type of suffering. So we count it joy to share in that. The suffering that is the result of overcoming sin that occurs when we say no to temptation, when we refuse to sin, when we are repentant and in the process of being healed from previous patterns of of, of of sinful living, for it is in this suffering that we gain victories, mature in character, solidify our trust or faith in God, overcome our own weaknesses, and witness the kingdom of God, and are ultimately freed from the control of fear and selfishness controlling our our lives. Not from the temptation of fear and selfishness, but from the control. Consider a person struggling with smoking. This is a metaphor. You can put anything in besides smoking. They're struggling with smoking. They've come under the conviction that they need to quit. The truth has been brought home. It's been sunk into their... They, they're convicted they need to quit. They surrender to Jesus and they choose to quit and ask for his power in being victorious. And God provides the power. But will there in the early days of that choice be some suffering that they go through? In the flesh. Will their flesh, their craving, will they have craving, will they suffer? But as long as they're suffering, 
because they're craving, because they're saying no and trusting the Lord for the outcome. Are they still smoking? Are they, have they ceased smoking? So those who suffer in the flesh are done with sin or have a cessation of it. They don't participate in it anymore. Do they continue to suffer if they stay on the path, or does the suffering eventually stop? The neural circuits rewire. They actually not only stop suffering, they actually experience a sense of joy, a sense of freedom, a sense of liberty. Uh, they, they will likely start having better um, cardiovascular oxygenation, climb stairs easier, uh, uh, feel better in their, in their own image of themselves being at liberty from this addiction, Yes. The suffering doesn't continue. This is how, if you've looked in your own life, pretty much every single personal struggle that we have with sin takes us through that valley in which we suffer in the flesh as we rely on Christ for the victory to overcome it, don't we? So this is why we rejoice in our suffering. It's the process of restoration, maturing, healing, and liberty. Second paragraph, it says, A crucible is defined in the dictionary as a vessel used for melting a substance that requires a high degree of heat, a severe test, a place or situation in which concentrated forces interact to cause or influence a change or development. With that definition, does any Bible text like immediately jump into mind? Does a Bible text jump into mind? When, when did for me? That's a really good one. Yep, that one's in my mind. The gold tried in the fire. Another one. How about this one? And the same lines, because I think they're connected. Malachi 3, 1 through 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and make them like gold and silver. That sound like a purifying process is going on? And, and who is being purified here? What's being purified? The Levites. Who are the Levites? The priesthood of believers. And, and according to this text, the, the, Jesus is coming to purify the Levites like gold and silver. When? When he comes where? When he comes to what? His temple. His temple. When Jesus was on earth, did he go to the temple in Jerusalem and cleanse it? Yes, he did. And... Uh, what did driving out of those frauds from the temple courts do? When he cleansed it 2,000 years ago, drove out the frauds, turned over the money tables and so forth and so on, what did it actually do? Did that cleansing of the temple on those two occasions, the beginning and end of his ministry, did, did those two events complete the plan of salvation? Did those events of cleansing that building from fraudulent business practices and people who have corruption in their heart, misrepresent, did that result in people being cleansed from sin by driving them out of the building? Can you cleanse people from sin by driving people out of a structure? So then, what Jesus did there was not actually cleansing from sin. What was it then? A teaching tool. Exactly. It was an acted out object lesson. It was theater. Remember, the temple at Jerusalem was a stage where a play was being acted out in recurring annual cycles. And the play that was being acted out on the stage was what? What was this? What was the, the message of the play? How God resolves the human sin problem and brings us back into unity or at one moment with him. That's what was being acted out there. And they had infected the play with a bunch of corruption that actually obstructed people from being reconciled. And so in the theater, Jesus drove out stuff that got in the way of God's healing from sin, theatrically driving it out, so that we would take the object lesson and understand the deeper meaning of what needs to be driven out so we can be healed from sin. And so one Bible commentator describes this beautifully in the book Desire of Ages, 
In page 161, it says the following. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus is announcing his mission as Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple erected for the abode of the divine presence was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and the world. That's a theater, an object lesson, a teaching tool. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being from the bright and holy seraph to man should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. Understand reality, okay? Metaphors and object lessons are only metaphors and object lessons if they're connected to some reality. If they're not connected to some reality, they're fantasy. God is the God of reality. He is not the God of fantasy. Thus, these object lessons are only valuable to the degree we connect them to and understand the reality they're trying to enlighten us about. So the reality was not about an inanimate building made out of lifeless stone. It's about what that is supposed to represent, which are the living temples in which the Holy Spirit dwells. And living beings created in the image of God are to be temples where God dwells by a spirit. The temple in Jerusalem was the theater to teach uh, the teaching tool to teach that reality. The law in that system was found in a box in the most holy place. But in the new covenant, the reality to which it points, the law is found written in our hearts and minds. And the reason for that is that God's law is a living law. It is the law of love, the protocols upon which life is built. It is not imposed rules like humans make, and therefore God's living law cannot operate on stone. It cannot function on stone. God's law of love requires a living being for it to be functional. Does that make sense? For it to operate. It only functions in living beings, and we are the repository of God's law. But when Adam sinned, God's law of life, the law of love, was displaced out of the hearts and minds of Adam and Eve, and the law of sin and death was written in. Fear and selfishness, survival drives. That's how the sinful mind and heart naturally operate. Thus Christ came to eradicate that death-causing principle and put back in the species human, the living law of God. God's presence dwells where it was intended, in the temple, in the Destroy this temple, Jesus said, and I'll raise it up in three days. As a human, as the second Adam, he restored God's law into the species human. Continue on with this quote. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be the temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the divine one. But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity, and through saving grace, the heart becomes again his temple. In the person of Jesus, God's living law of love is restored in humanity. Jesus becomes the connecting link, the bridge builder, the ladder, the mystical ladder, the the, uh, the vine, and we're the branches. And when we connect to Jesus, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Okay, We get new hearts and right spirits. His law is reproducing us through what Jesus has done. God designed that the temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. That temple is an object lesson for what God wants to achieve in you and me, to cleanse us from sin, to write his law upon our hearts and minds. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they regarded with such pride, with much pride. And I'm going to suggest many Christians don't understand that either. The object lesson point, the very literal, concrete. They did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. The courts of the temple of Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly. This is the what, what, what was going on there. The unholy traffic represents that's that's object lesson. Represents the reality to all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sexual sensual passions and unholy thoughts, in cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers. Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin, from the earthly desires and selfish lusts, the evil habits that corrupt the soul. And then this quotation. The Lord you seek will come to suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant you delight in. Behold, he shall come, the Lord of, said the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. 
and he shall sit as the refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. That's what I hear about when I think of a crucible. The crucibles we go through in this world, the difficulties that turn the heat up in our hearts, are designed to melt the heart, burn out the impurities, and purify the gold of love and trust into our hearts. Is this cleansing described in the commentary I just read? Is that a legal cleansing? Cleansing of record books and erasing historical facts of sins committed? Or is that cleansing an actual cleansing of the heart and mind of people? Where does sin occur? Does sin occur in books or in people? From where does sin to be removed? Does it need to be removed from historical records or from hearts and minds of people? But what happens to the healing of hearts and minds if people are persuaded that the plan of salvation is not about healing hearts and minds, it's about getting records adjusted? If you're persuaded that the problem is a legal one, and you're persuaded that salvation is getting an adjustment in a book in a, in a courtroom somewhere off in the universe, not about your heart and mind, what happens to the plan of salvation? What happens in the hearts and minds of those people? Do you see how some trick, how some are tricked by Satan to become Pharisaical, as they were in, or, or, or as the church leadership was in the dark ages? where they account for the legal behaviors of sin, but there's no power that transforms the heart. They have a form of godliness, but no power thereof. In reality, when the heart and mind is cleansed, when the heart and mind is cleansed of sin, the historical records of what transpired prior to the heart and mind being cleansed do not change. In all eternity future, it will be historically true that David murdered Uriah and had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Those historical events never change. What changed was David's heart and mind. He was recreated and became a loyal and faithful person who would not exploit another anymore. And in fact, it's critical that those historical records are not erased from history, but are retained in history. Why is it important those records of what transpired are retained? It's a lesson book. What, what else? A promise that we too can change. A promise that we too. In eternity future. After the new heaven and new earth. Uh, when there is no more sin and sinners. Why is it important that the records of our own struggles on this earth are retained? So it shows that God, how God has worked in our lives. Is that in his character? It's a revelation of the power of God to heal and restore. There's no question. And it gives us greater appreciation for him. What do you think heaven would be like if when we get to heaven, we all view each other in the same way we view Gabriel? That's holy and righteous who'd never actually ever done anything wrong. Might that change our experience? Might it change our experience? Might our view of God be different? I gave this example before. You or a loved one is dying from a terminal disease, cancer. There's no cure. Doctor comes along, gives you one pill, you take it, and it immediately puts your cancer under me. You're perfectly healthy. Your child is leukemia is gone. They're healthy and they can live a full life again. Do you have appreciation for that doctor who cured you or your child? But how about if tomorrow when you wake up, all you know is your child is perfectly healthy and all memory of their cancer is gone. You have no recollection of it at all. Does your appreciation for the doctor stay the same or does it go down? You see, this is, this is part of the problem about erasing books. No, sin doesn't happen in books. The history is vital, so it never rises again. And we will, it describes in Revelation, sing a song of our experience in Revelation. And we will praise him for all eternity, for what he has done for us. And we will gain depths of perspective of his achievements and the contrast for what he has, how he has transformed us to where we once were. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And we, we, we can't fully appreciate it. Yes. Where it says that God throws our sins to the depths of the sea. Yep. 
and remembers them no more. Okay, does that mean that God uh, uh, that sin causes God to develop Alzheimer's dementia? And he forgets <laughs> that he has no recollection. He 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 does a he does a data dump, and that you you bring that up. Hey, Lord, you remember when you delivered me back in 2021 from that temptation? No, I haven't actually. I can't remember that at all. So it has to do with function, not historical fact. You have a first grader six years of age and your first grader steals a cookie and then fibs about it and is a loving mother, you intervene with discipline to bring them to repentance, right? Uh, which comes first, your forgiveness of the child or their repentance? Forgiveness. Why are you disciplining? Because you want to take vengeance upon them or because you love them and you want to redeem them? And so you've already forgiven them, but there can't be reconciliation until they are no longer a thief and a liar, Right. And so you discipline, and when you discipline, the child comes to conviction. Mommy, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Yes, of course, I've already forgiven you. Are you repentant? You cannot do this anymore. Yes, and there's hugs and kisses, and there's reconciliation, right? Isn't that how it works? The next day when your child comes home from first grade, and you see him running up from the school bus up, this, up the sidewalk, and you got your arms open, you go, oh, here comes that little liar of mine. Is that what you think? Uh, it, it, do you have amnesia for what happened the day before? Or have you forgotten it? Why is it forgotten? Because it's been removed from the heart of your child. It's no longer between you. It doesn't have to be thought about or talked about. But there is no amnesia erasure going on there. And in fact, as we grow up and we reflect back on our mommies and daddies, and we remember some of those things, we go, wow, you were so gracious. I'm so thankful for you. You did so much for me. I appreciate you so much. Isn't that how it works? Yep. Sunday's lesson. The lesson highlights that Peter's reminding believers not to be surprised when trials and struggles come. To understand such difficulties are not foreign or alien to the Christian journey, but an expected part of it. Why are trials and difficulties an expected part of the Christian journey? We understand in the world, but once you give your heart to, heart to Christ, why are we still having trials and difficulties? Because we live in a sinful world. Because we live in a sinful world. And and how, how does reality work? How does reality work? Once there is brokenness, there's no pain-free options. No pain-free options. The healing pathway is a pathway that has pain. You can't avoid it. We've all been injured in this world, wounded, broken in some way by sin, and the restoration to health, to wellness, is a painful process. But painful is not the same as harmful. One of Satan's traps is tricking people into choosing what feels good rather than what is good. I'll say that again. One of Satan's traps is tricking people into choosing what feels good rather than what is good. Uh, last paragraph reads, uh, Many of us are surprised about suffering because we often have an oversimplified view of the Christian life. We know there are two sides, God who is good and Satan who is bad. But often we then automatically put everything that feels good into the box with God and everything that feels bad into the box with Satan. But life is not so simple. We cannot use our feelings to decide what is in God's box or Satan's box. Sometimes walking with God can be challenging and hard, and following Satan can appear to bring rewards. Job, who uh, who is righteous and yet suffering, illustrates this when he asks God, why do the wicked live on growing old and increasing in power? Why do they seem to be blessed and they're doing bad? It's well said, well, well described paragraph. Feelings are an unreliable barometer for determining what's true. They're unreliable. Feelings are signals that something's happening, but the feelings themselves do not determine whether what's happening is good or bad. The truth itself determines whether it's good or bad, not the feelings. For instance, if you feel pain, does that mean something? Tell me, you feel pain. I'm in pain. Something's hurting. Does that mean something good or bad is happening? Some of you said, I don't know. Some said bad. Some said it could be good. The feeling of pain cannot determine whether it's good or bad. The feeling of pain only tells you that something is happening. Whether it's good or bad has to be determined by the truth itself. If you're experiencing pain because you're being stabbed by an assailant, then what is happening is bad. The pain is still good. Because the pain alerts you that you're being stabbed and get away from it. <laughs> okay? But what's happening is bad. 
the reason for the pain is bad, but the pain is still a, a warning signal to you you're being being damaged, okay? But if you were to able to somehow numb yourself up before an assailant stabbed you, and thus you're being stabbed with no pain, that doesn't mean the stabbing is good. Well, it doesn't hurt, therefore it's okay. It's either good or bad based on the objective truth of what's happening, not because of what one feels. Conversely, you feel pain while removing a thorn from your finger. It hurts to remove the thorn from your finger. Does that pain mean something bad is happening in that moment? And I should leave it alone because it's hurting me to remove the the thorn. No, the pain doesn't indicate something bad is happening. It just indicates it hurts. So many things in this life, and some things hurt necessarily to help us grow. What's the old saying? No pain, no no pain, no gain. And in the gym, you work it till it till it burns, right? You feel that muscle burn. Isn't that, isn't that the saying? Well, physical therapy after an injury. You've had cast for six weeks. Now you gotta put weight on it and stretch those ligaments and and uh, muscles. And you say to the therapist, hey, I'll come back and do this when it, when it doesn't hurt. <laughs> Will you ever walk again? Does that mean the pain is bad? No, once there's brokenness, there's no pain-free options. I have patients who the entire life is one long history of chaos, dysfunctional relationship after dysfunctional relationship, poor choices in school, work, often various substance use problems. And for many of these people, the root process that is operational in every phase of their life is the primary mode of decision-making is doing what feels best right now and avoiding anything that feels bad right now. That's their prime decision-making. Whatever right now feels best and whatever hurts least right now, that's what I do. And you will find that people who operate that way are the most dysfunctional human beings in society. Until they learn the reality that once there's brokenness, there's no pain-free options, they continue to live chaotic lives. Once they learn it and stop trying to avoid pain, but instead commit themselves to choosing what's actually healthy, regardless of how it feels, once they start down that path, well, if it's healthy, I'm going to choose to do it, even if it's uncomfortable, that's when they start getting well. And generally... Like with the physical therapy, the pain doesn't persist forever. It's uncomfortable for a while, but the healthier you get and the stronger you get, the pain gets less and less. Monday's lesson asks us to read 1 Peter 5.8. It says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then the first paragraph, I want you to hear the first paragraph. It says, have you ever watched a hungry lion? It's awesome because you know it can catch and eat just about anything it wants. Peter says that Satan is prowling around in the same way. When we look around, we can see the consequences of his desire to kill, death, suffering, and the twisting and perverting of morals and values are everywhere. We cannot escape seeing the work of Satan. Any thoughts on the Bible text and the paragraph's description? Any any critical analysis going on here? The Bible absolutely says that Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking those to devour. There's no question. But i got to ask you a question. See, Peter made a very distinct critical difference in his description of Satan and what an actual lion does. It revealed a method that Satan uses that is central to Satan's capturing people. Do real lions roar when they're stalking their prey? Why don't they, as they're stalking in closely to the gazelle, why don't they roar before they get there? Because the prey will? Exactly. But, so, but Satan is described as roaring. Real lions don't do that when they're stalking their prey, but Satan does. It's an important critical distinction to understand because this is how he captures his prey. What does a lion's roar do? It incites fear. And what does fear cause people to do? When you become afraid, what is the natural response? As fear goes up, what goes down? Love. It's like a seesaw. They're inversely proportional. Neurobiologically, 
relationally, however you want to describe it, the more fearful people get, the more survival-driven they get, and the less they're able to love. The more you actually are altruistic, love for somebody more than yourself. As love goes up, guess what goes down? Fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, we see this. When you develop your love circuits and they grow, it sends a calming signal down to the amygdala, the fear circuits. You actually have less biological fear when you are in a position of other-centered love. This is, this is how we are built. So Satan roars to incite fear and lure people away from the path of love to enter the path of me first, protect self first, survival drives, and then we justify Satan's methods to protect self and claim it's really to benefit others. I really want you to wear that mask because I I love you. And I want to protect you. Okay, so you need to wear that mask and you need to get that shot. Because the wet mask I'm wearing and the shot I took won't protect me unless you get yours. But but it's really not about me, it's about you. And what drove all that? Fear. And, uh, you know, next month I'm doing a talk in, in Michigan entitled COVID and the manipulation of your mind. I can tell you, I'm going to go through a nine step process that was used to manipulate minds, but the core beneath the process, all the nine steps were designed to incite fear, to incite fear, to diminish love, to stop rational thought. That's what the process was. And it was really done on a masterful level, propaganda wise and misinformation wise to maximize fear make people feel helpless so that they would become more malleable and willing to comply with actions that were designed to make them feel safe without actually making them safe. This is what the devil does. He incites fear. Why why did Caiaphas recommend crucifying Jesus? What was his stated in the scripture rationale to the Sanhedrin? It's better for one man to die than the nation. We are doing this to protect people. The nation might be the institution, it might be the people, or both. But the argument was, this is a good thing to do. We are going to do this thing. We're going to put perjury and fraud and, and kill an innocent because, it, you know, the ends justify the means. We'll be safe from Roman persecution if we do this. Fear. That's that's the motive of the enemy. That's how he gets people. And this is how the beast of Revelation rises to do justice. It rises in a world in which people are terrified and afraid, and they want to feel safe. They want to feel safe. And you can only have true safety. Well, true safety can only happen when God's law is written in the hearts, and you live in a society where everybody loves you more than themselves. The worldly way pursues safety by external threat and control, and you have communist China with a soldier on every corner, and you have monitoring systems monitoring you, and they'll put little devices inside your house that can listen to everything you say. You know, things that you say, you know, what's that woman's name that you call out when you want something these days in your house? Alexa, Alexa, that's it. Hey, Alexa. Okay, they're listening all the time. And this is where society goes. We'll we'll eventually be able to monitor and listen and control with threats. This is the beast revelation. We're only doing justice, we're doing what's right, we're stopping violence, we're stopping abuse. Because when you don't have in your heart to love others, you can only pr- create a society of pretended safety by external control and force. And that would be the justification because people are afraid and they don't want to be afraid. We've seen the same type of thinking in Christian history. What about the Dark Ages? We've got to make everybody safe spiritually. And what they do? Look at the abuses of the motive, fear. In this description in the lesson, death, suffering, and the twisting and perverting of morals and values are everywhere. We cannot escape seeing the work of Satan. Do you agree? I agree with that. And do you agree that death and suffering and torment and abuse that we see in society is the lesson said? Do you agree that, that these are from Satan and from sin? Do we agree with that? 
We 100% agree with that. This is absolutely correct. Satan, the Bible says, is a murderer from the beginning. Jesus came to destroy him, holds the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14. Death comes from sin and Satan. The wage of sin is death. Sin when full grown brings forth death. Okay? We agree. Then why does so much of Christianity and so many people in the Christian church teach that one day God will use his power to inflict pain and suffering and torture on death that people would not otherwise reap if he didn't use his power to kill them? If, in fact, death and pain and suffering come from sin and Satan. Do you see a disconnect there, a a problem? And the reason why they do is because the people who teach that are operating in a false worldview, and the false worldview is not worshiping the creator whose laws reality are built upon. They're worshiping a Roman imperial dictator who makes up rules, and his laws function no different than any law human makes. Those laws require external enforcement and punishment. In order to be just, God has to punish you. There's no justice. When you get back to worshiping the Creator, you understand if somebody ties a plastic bag over their head, you actually don't have to have a jury trial and inflict punishment on them for that. You don't. And breaking God's laws harden the heart, warp the character. You worship false gods? You don't have to have a jury trial and inflict punishment. The Bible's very clear on that. In Jeremiah, they worship worthless idols and themselves became worthless. Romans 1, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Their minds became dark and depraved and futile. It is a law. By beholding, we become changed. You can't avoid the damage, searing of the conscience, hardening of the heart, warping the character that comes from worshiping a false god. God does not have to have a jury trial and say, well... You know what? You worship the false god. That's a legal problem, and I'm going to have to inflict punishment. No. It destroys the soul. It's unavoidable. The idea that God is the source of inflicted pain, of suffering and death for sin, is a lie of Satan that keeps many people from trusting God and creating a dichotomy in the Godhead in which one member is a loving, self-sacrificial being who would give his life to save you, and another member is an angry, wrathful deity who will kill you if he's not pled with by the one who loves you. That is not what Jesus said. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. On and on the Scriptures go. This other thing is part of Satan's attack on the character of God. I'm going to be very clear. We are not saying that the unrepentant wicked will not suffer and die terribly. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that suffering comes out from unremedied sin in their lives. It doesn't come out from an artificial infliction by a powerful potentate. That's what I'm saying. And that's what the Bible teaches in in, uh, Galatians 6, 8, those who sow to the carnal nature from that Nature reap destruction. So, so discipline is not destruction. Discipline is not punishment for sin. Discipline brings suffering to us. Discipline can be experienced in the moment as suffering, but is it is it is it actually harmful and destructive, or healing and redemptive? So, discipline is not in the category of punishment for sin at all. It's not inflicted. It's not artificial. It might be an artificial therapeutic intervention that you bring, but the purpose and the goal is restoration and healing, not um, legal accountability or bringing consequence or an an artificial uh, punishment that you wouldn't otherwise reap. This is the whole fraudulent thing of the imposed law model. If you don't inflict punishment, there's no justice because justice is accountability and inflicting punishment, but that is only in a human law model. So yes, God disciplines those he loves, but discipline means comes from the root disciple. It means to teach. Punishment comes from the root punitive, means to exact vengeance upon. And so there, there's quite distinct, but many in our modern vernacular, they use them interchangeably, and they think punishment and discipline are the same. They're not. We disciple. But we don't need to inflict punishment for sin. It's just that in the Old Testament, you know, the Lord... Says, I will punish you, I will inflict this, I will get the Babylonians to catch 
Yes, and why does the language say this in the Old Testament? So the Old Testament is grossly misunderstood because people are not understanding the landscape of what's transpiring in there, and the landscape of the Old Testament is Genesis 3.15. Messiah is promised. Without Messiah, no human is saved. We're all lost. And the whole Old Testament story is God working out the plan through the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring Messiah, and Satan working to stop it. That's the landscape. That's what we focus, where we focus. And God, and God's interventions in the Old Testament are interventions to keep open that avenue while Satan is working to close that avenue. And all those interventions of God are all therapeutic. None of them are punitive. They're all therapeutic. They're, the, the, even if you take the legal model, and I've said this many times, for those who believe in a judicial model, when is punishment for sin given? Before or after judgment? Well, after judgment. You have to have the judgment, and then you punish. That's how it works. Well, when is the judgment? In the old, did the judgment happen in Old Testament times? Or from Old Testament times, was it still sometime in the future? Judgment hadn't happened yet. So all those things happening in the Old Testament cannot be punishment for sin. There's something else. And the people who died all those deaths, Jesus himself said there's two resurrections, a resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation. All those deaths people are going to be raised from in one of two resurrections. So that type of death isn't the wages of sin death because the wages of sin death isn't the one we rise from. So if you put all the actual pieces together, none of that, but people take it and they misapply it through a human law lens and they'll use isolated examples to try to make a point that is distorted from actual history and reality. But you, I'm glad you brought it up because this type of thinking is very common. But let's go back to this idea then. Some people say, well, okay, but it, I, I, sure, it's not fair though. And God's got a fairness. See, it's not fair that Hitler and Stalin will suffer the same punishment as a 20-year-old college student who never accepted Jesus and died of a drug overdose in, in college. The Hitler and Stalin did much more wickedness and evil. They deserve greater punishment than the 20-year-old. They can't be the same punishment for both. Therefore, God has to perform a miracle to keep Hitler and Stalin alive for many days to torture them before he kills them because a just God would do that. This argument is very common. What's the problem with that argument? Not a loving God. Well, first, what kind of being would God be? In their view, it is very loving because it's fair. And it's unfair for people whose loved ones died in the concentration camps under Hitler for him simply to die quickly. It's much more loving for them to have their spleen vented in a sense of just satisfaction, knowing he was in agony and he suffered the agony he caused others. Oh, I can live in a universe like that. This is how they think. This is what justice is. It, it's really, it really is a revelation of a serious corruption in their understanding of reality. Uh, suddenly, uh, uh, you, can, you can hopefully move some of those people a little bit, but they won't have the conversation with you. If you say, well, instead of Hitler, let's instead say it was your own son or daughter who wasn't in heaven, or maybe your own mother. And you're on the committee who has to decide. And the committee decides that your son or daughter deserves three days, 12 hours, 48 minutes, and 12 seconds. And after the first two hours of watching your child out there screaming in agony, and do you say, and, and maybe, maybe your child's guardian angel comes up to you and says, hey, um, do you think that's enough? I'm having a hard time watching this. Can't, can't we just let them go now? Would you say, oh no, justice requires, you know, two, 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 they got three more days to go. It's only been two hours. They got three more days and 10 hours to go. Oh no. And if that's what you would say about your own son or daughter or mother, then you probably aren't going to be on the right side of that equation. Okay. And when you put that to these people who take this view, they get very angry. They won't have the conversation. They'll walk away and claim that you aren't even Christian on some of these things, that you don't understand justice, that you are trying to undermine God's law. The, the root problem, I'll make it very clear, I, you can break it down. It's a complete division of two, one's reality and another's a fantasy world. And it's how you understand God's law. 
that whole premise of everything they teach is based on a false narrative that God's law functions like human law, made up rules that require infliction of punishment. Once you shift and accept that God is the creator, his laws are laws upon which reality operate, life and health are built there, and if you break them, you damage yourself, harden your heart, take yourself out of harmony with the source of life, and the only result is ruin and death. The wages in his death, sin full grown, brings forth death and so forth. Then you can see why that's where the dichotomy is. So you can argue all this text and that text and the Old Testament examples and everything, but if, if, if you're operating on design law and they're operating on imposed law, you will make no traction at all. They will always see you as a heretic or a liberal or uh, um, somebody who, who doesn't believe in the word of God. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. Take it very concretely. Only the text they like will they take concrete. They can show 100 texts that they will immediately interpret because it doesn't fit their legal view. Like, go take the tithe and buy fermented wine and come rejoice for the Lord. Oh, no, we have to interpret that. But the Bible said it. Yeah, but. So this is what you get. So first problem with this view is what kind of being is God? God becomes the source of death in this view. The Bible never teaches that. God is the source of life. Death comes from sin. Satan is the murderer from the beginning. Satan, Jesus came to destroy him, holds the power of death. Uh, the gospel, through Jesus Christ, he destroyed um, uh, um, death and brought life and immortality to light. Okay, but this view teaches God is the source of death as punishment for sin. The problem in this view with sinning is not what it does to you. It's not that it hardens your heart, corrupts your character, uh, makes you hostile and rebellious against the loving creator. That's not the problem. The problem is you're in legal trouble with the one in charge. And therefore, the solution isn't that you need to be reborn and have the, quote, blood, metaphorical, the life of Christ reproduced in you or applied to your heart. No, 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 no. It, the blood has to be presented to the one in charge to pay him his legal price, his blood payment, so he won't ra- uh, lash out in anger and wrath and kill you. The problem is legal with the ruling magistrate, not condition with your heart and mind. So it, it creates a complete false diagnostic problem. Wouldn't... Hitler suffer more anyway due to the consequences of the guilt and shame that he's thrown upon himself. So this is this is exactly what we describe and we teach having to go here today, but you're exactly right. Every sin reacts upon the sinner. It transforms you. You keep a record of all the evil that you've perpetrated uh, in your own character, in your own being. It's, it's there, written on the, on the uh, tablets of your own um, individuality. And when the infinite God reveals his self and the fires of infinite love and truth flow over the unrepentant, which one day the Bible describes happening. Their own false narratives, justifications, rationalizations, denials, and distortions that they tell themselves so they can feel good about themselves don't work because they're all false. The full truth comes in and they have awareness of their own character, the evil they've done. I believe they'll have awareness of what the other people that they mistreated suffered and went through. That awareness, that's truth. All truth comes bearing down. And this causes a weeping and gnashing and agony. They also have awareness of what Christ did for them and how they rejected it, how Christ and God's kingdom work and what love and truth and grace really looks like, what they have cheated themselves and others out of. All of this comes weighing down on them. And it is a terrible agony and suffering. The more evil they've done, the more of that... Reality weighs down, but the suffering doesn't come out from God. It comes out from unremitied sin in them. And that is exactly what I think happens. Talks about in the lesson about Satan being a defeated foe. He uses that language. Satan is a defeated foe. Jesus conquered him and, and, and defeated him. And remember, if you're going through trials, remember, Satan is a defeated foe. Does that actually help you? You're going through a trial. Hey, he's already whipped, man. He's defeated. Well, when we won World War II and Germany and Japan were defeated, and they were defeated, did the war continue or did the war actually stop once they were defeated, the actual combat and war? Didn't it come to a a cessation of hostilities? So if he's defeated, does that mean the devil and his minions are no longer at war? They're not waging war anymore? Or are they still waging war? Well, how do you put that together? Christ, 2,000 years ago, came, incarnate, born of a woman, went out, confronted the devil, overcame, 
won the victory. Yes, in his person, he defeated all the temptations that the devil could throw at him and rose again victorious. No question. Jesus defeated him 2,000 years ago. Does that mean that he is defeated from the entire planet? No, the outcome is, is assured, the ultimate outcome, but the war still rages. Why? Why is the war still raging? If he's defeated and Jesus defeated him 2,000 years, well, then what's the purpose of the Why don't we just end it? There's a reason. But still have to make up their mind who was right, the truth. Should people still have to make up their mind, and this has to go with the nature of the war and how it is won. For we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument, pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Take captive every thought. The war is over the knowledge of God fought in our own minds. And what is it God wants? What does God need to achieve for God to win? Well, he just needs to eliminate Satan. If he just snuffed him out, he wins, right? He needs a heart. Can God win by eliminating Satan? Yes or no? No, he cannot. If God could have won the war by eliminating Satan, he would have done it in heaven and Adam and Eve would have never fallen. That would not have won the war. So what's necessary for God to win? He must eliminate the lies, rebellion, fear, selfishness, distrust in the hearts of his saved beings and solidify us into loyalty, faithfulness, friendship, trust, so that sin never rises again. So he can't just eliminate Satan, the being. He has to eliminate everything Satan has taught that that causes disaffection, distrust, and rebellion out of the hearts of all who are saved. And he can't do that by exercising might, not by might nor by power, but by the way the spirit works, spirit is truth and love. Truth presented in love, leaving us free, and every person is fully persuaded in their own mind. And when we are one to trust and open the heart, the spirit comes in, and a transforming process happens within us. And the righteous that are finally saved in the end, now this is true at any time in history, but there'll be a whole planet will be so settled into the truth that nothing can shake them. They will be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those guys went through a fiery trial, literally fiery trial. They would not be shaken from their loyalty. Daniel, thrown in Eliza, he would not be shaken from his loyalty. Job could not be shaken. The story is told that John the Apostle was thrown in a vat of boiling oil. He could not be shaken. Many martyrs, Stephen, when he was being, would not be shaken. All of the righteous at the end will have settled so clearly in their loyalty and trust of God. And now I don't find it anywhere written that any of these faithful who could not be shaken enjoyed the suffering. Well, this is fun. Uh, you know what? This fiery furnace is kind of like a tanning booth. Getting a little, getting a little UV radiation. Hey, did you bring some, uh, no, you don't find that going on. There's no joy going on. It was not pleasant experience. But the unpleasantness of the trials did not shake them. And at the end of the final movements, the earth, the three groups of people, one group sealed and settled like the ones I just gave you example. And there have been some of those throughout all history. There's always been a few. Enoch was another one. Okay, And then there's some that are settled and sealed into the lies and rebellion and no truth and love will have any impact upon them. Sodom, Gomorrah, those who didn't get on the boat with Noah. Judas eventually settled and sealed himself that way. And others throughout history. And then the middle group, who are neither sealed into God that they can't be moved, nor have they permanently destroyed the faculties which respond to what uh, the movements of the Holy Spirit. The undecided group, that group before Christ comes evaporates, and everyone settles one side or the other. And God cannot win simply by exercising might and power because the more might and power you exercise, and this is part of the Bible history, he used might and power many places at the flood. And after the flood, they built the Tower of Babel because they trusted him or didn't trust him. Okay? Uh, they, he used the, the, the plagues of Egypt and the, and the walking through the Red Sea on dry ground and all the other mirrors, well, did, did it result in loyalty or they worship a golden calf 40 days later? Uh, Mount Carmel, fire comes down. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then Israel, after that, is faithful and loyal. They're back into Baal worship and rebellion. Might and power does not win love and trust. It simply shows who's powerful. That's all. And that's why he doesn't win. It's 
In Romans, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. The truth presented in love left free wins us. And that's transformational. And when we are sealed in truth and love, then we will not be shaken. And that's what he's waiting for. So God can't win this war simply by eliminating Satan with might and power. It requires the revelation that Jesus gave and the victory that Jesus achieved for us as a human being at the cross. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you so much for your spirit. We ask that the spirit will be poured out to not only enlighten us, but to transform us and to take the victory of Christ and reproduce it in us. So it's no longer that that we live our old sinful lives, but we live new lives in Christ. We pray in your holy name. Amen.